Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. Hi, it's Mike, Mike Pesca. You may know me from such subscription services as Pesca Plus. That's available at subscribe.mikepesca.com. It's not about that today, because today is Saturday, and Saturday means it's the Saturday show. We bring you one from the past week and one from the vault, with commercial interruption, of course. If you want to remedy that, go to subscribe at mikepesca.com. But it's not about that. What it's about is a spiel I did on Tuesday as I announced our subscription service. Do you want the address? Well, you can rewind. Uh, It was about audience capture. It was about the imperative that news organizations sometimes risk upsetting some of their readers or viewers. It was a little long. It was a little flabby. Did that upset you? I'm glad I risked it. No, but it was still pretty good. And now I will also give to you an interview I did in 2018 with Stuart Eisenstadt, who is an official in the administration of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, now in hospice, I think maybe by the time you listen to this, uh, he, he may still, I hope he's still with us, but the time is nearing an end for former President Carter, a great former president. But how great a president was he? Stuart Eisenstadt has written something of the definitive history, certainly the the definitive insider history of Jimmy Carter and his work there. A fascinating interview from a few years ago. No one's more fascinated by Cardinalia than I am, and I hope now you will be too. So, first... The spiel, and then Jimmy Carter, a look back on his administration by former Undersecretary of the Treasury, Stuart Eisenstadt. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, 
B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Vivek Ramaswamy, businessman and author, has an announcement, and leading up to that announcement, as you will hear, big reasons strap in. They tell you that your race, your gender, and your sexual orientation govern who you are, what you can achieve, and what you're allowed to think. This is psychological slavery, and that has created a new culture of fear in our country that has completely replaced our culture of free speech in America. And that is why today I am announcing my run for chairman of Bucks County School Board, head of the Heritage Foundation. I don't know. Let's think bigger. A seat in city government, like say Portland. No, Minneapolis. There we go. Minneapolis Town Council. President of the United States. Oh, president. It's going to Andrew Yang his way into this one, is he? Well, even though the ambition is outsized, the phrasing there that you heard is at least conventional. Here is how Vivek phrased it on his appearance on Tucker Carlson last night. And that's why I'm proud to say tonight that I am running for United States president. The why was once again divisiveness over diversity. Well, not only is Vivek Ramaswamy not qualified to be president of the United States or United States president, the United States president can't end wokeness. In fact, quite the opposite. I don't know if you noticed, but the least woke guy ever, initials DJT, was president at the time of the biggest expansion of wokeness. I wouldn't say he was just powerless to stop it. I would say his personality, stances, revanchist ways breathed more of it into being than we could ever have imagined. So I'm very familiar with Ramaswamy from his writings in the Wall Street Journal. I've heard him on podcasts. I read a big profile of him in The New Yorker. That wasn't the fairest piece of journalism, but it was pretty good. It was clearly designed as one of those scene setters before a candidate bursts onto the scene. A reporter spends a lot of time and then becomes the go-to source of understanding and explaining this guy to the rest of the media. You know, this in advance of, let's say, his Senate race is the Republican nominee opposing Sherrod Brown. But president? riding anti-wokeness to the White House? I have no doubt that Ramaswamy's sentiment is a mix of sincerity and opportunism. Anti-woke is his brand, the name of his book, or Woke Inc. was, and he understands branding. He's an ex-CEO. He's an author. That authorship has given him speaking opportunities, has invited him on Fox News a lot. But let's just think about how important the issue of wokeness or being anti-wokeness is. Lots of Republicans talk about it. They rally the base about it. There's definitely a segment of the audience that wants to hear about it. But there is no evidence that it's a driving issue in selecting a president or even really any officials. Virginia's Glenn Youngkin will be cited as a champion of anti-wokeness, but not really. He just took advantage of missteps by Terry McAuliffe in how he talked to parents and how he dismissed their concerns. Driving issue? I mean, look at it this way. Even crime and inflation, which are certainly legitimate concerns, and concerns that we have empirically derived stats about, right? They weren't primary on the list of issues that voters use to determine their midterm votes. Wokeness? In a decade, wokeness went from slang to, what, electoral determinant? Will the 2030 race be fought on the grounds of which candidate is most mid? You know where I stand on immigration, on taxes, and most importantly, on fleek. Fleek, fleek, fleek. Or Tippy Canoe and Tyler Chugi. 
That is the oppo ad when Tyler, the creator, runs for president or vice president uh, in that framing. So you get my point. Wokeness is annoying to a lot of people. It's fighting words just to use the word will get others extremely mad at you. But again, there is no evidence that it's something so annoying as to be salient to voters. And if annoying things or the desire not to be annoyed is why voters went to the polls, then running on a vow to ban that cars for kids jingle would be a gigantic winner. Now, I do think that most voters actually agree more than disagree with Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo and every other candidate who has announced or thought of announcing the Republican nomination. Putting aside the definition of the somewhat amorphic term woke, if we could agree what to call the trend of progressive activism gaining ground and prominence, the average voter probably sets their preference dial more towards the negative of that trend than the positive. I mean, if it was mostly welcomed in most places, it wouldn't have to be activism, would it? I mean, keep in mind that when we're talking about the average or modal voter, uh, when you think of swing voters or the backbone of this or that party, just actually think of the median American voter. The median American voter is a white woman in her early 50s with less than a college education. Who's she voting for? What are her concerns? Does she think Sam Smith really is a Satanist based on his Grammy performance? She does not. Is she maybe worried about what her school is teaching her kids? Yeah, maybe yes. Even though parents are not up in arms about battles over CRT, that is true. Most think teaching it in schools is somewhat of a problem. I get this from polling that was conducted by the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers. And what's funny is that the AFT very, very much wanted to show that parents are interested more on focusing on core competencies than on culture war fodder. And that is true. They did get that result. But they also asked some interesting questions like, now this is to people who took their poll, now you will see things that some people may feel are problems in public schools today. For each one, please indicate whether you feel this is a serious problem for the public school in your area. One question was, white students being shamed over issues of race and racism. And 55% of parents, who were a demographically diverse group, counted it as at least a somewhat serious problem. They also asked about schools teaching critical race theory, or CRT. 54% of parents said it was at least a somewhat serious problem. 30% said it was not a problem and 16% weren't sure. But an issue preference does not turn a campaign into a rocket ship to Washington. And if it did, should James Webb be associated with that rocket? And also I need to point out, since this is why we're talking about it, even if this were the most important issue to voters, is Vivek Ramaswamy? the likely champion that those voters are looking for? I will go further than saying as a key issue, this one's a loser. So first, let me posit that some version of stifling free expression and enforcing groupthink is in fact quite bad. It is something to worry about. Maybe not as bad as the war in Ukraine, maybe more than resort fees. Okay, I talk about this kind of a lot, try to not talk about it too much on the show. Maybe I don't mention often enough, though, that these trends, these pernicious trends, are not occurring via government intervention. Almost never. It's almost always a matter of social costs being imposed or changes in the culture, real or imagined, and not anything the government does. The government sometimes catches up to where the culture moves on an issue like this. Ramaswamy even announced his campaign in Rochester, New Hampshire, tweeting, this isn't a political campaign, but a cultural movement. 
Actually, I would think in this case, it's a little bit of neither. But just as the people most upset about wokeness think the government should stay out of their lives when it comes to guns, environmental regulations, and permits, I think the government should stay out of our lives when it comes to wokeness by not imposing it and not banning it. First of all, there's no definition to it. So it really just becomes a proxy for things I don't like. But if a local school board wants a CRT-heavy curriculum or an AP class that includes a section on intersectionality, that's good if they have parental buy-in. If a local school board, not a governor from above, but actual parents in the district and educator want these topics to be taught a different way, that's also fine. You can't ban books. That'd be my rule. But you also can't fire a football coach who questions curriculum elements. Separation of woke and state doesn't mean, that's my decree, separation of woke and state. It doesn't mean that you can't have a progressive agenda, just like it certainly means you can't ban by fiat elements of progressivity in the agenda. But it does mean that the imposition of these elements and retaliation against opponents who voice concerns and critiques is not the proper role of government. So this is why my platform is the separation of woke and state. And that is why I'm running for United States president. No, just podcaster. Now available ad-free. Subscribe at MikePesca.com. This isn't just an offer of an ad-free podcast. This is a movement. President Jimmy Carter had an eventful four years as president. He's frequently mentioned and probably unfairly maligned for one or two moments where, if you really examine it, he showed his humanity in a way that we say we all demand from presidents, but when they do, we punish them. Statements like, I've lusted in my heart, and speeches like the Malays speech, which, by the way, never included the word Malays, and was greeted with a lot of approval at the time. In a almost 1,000-page, yeah, it stops at 999. So in an almost 1,000-page chronicle of the Carter presidency, Stuart Eisenstadt is here. He was President Carter's chief White House domestic policy advisor. He has served many roles in many Democratic administrations. He's one of those wise men of Washington and was in the room where it happened. Hello, Mr. Eisenstadt. How are you? Mike, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So what I wanted to do was talk about two aspects of the Carter presidency. One I literally never heard about before reading your book, and one is in the news tangentially. So the first one is the deregulation of natural gas. And I'm fascinated in this because it's such an important thing. It shows how government can help people. We beyond take it for granted. I think most of us don't know that government played a role. Could you tell me what the issue was at the time and how the Carter administration came to affect that issue? Sure. The president made energy, Mike, his number one domestic priority when he came into office because of our growing dependence on OPEC oil. And so he put in place three major energy bills in four years. The first was the most difficult, and it was the deregulation of natural gas. And what happened as a result is emblematic of so much of what I write about in this book, and that is 
it led to the explosion of production domestically of both crude oil and natural gas. It's one of the reasons, Mike, that we enjoy energy security and less dependence on OPEC today than we did then. So it was bloody, it was difficult, but it was successful. And as a result, natural gas now flows, which it did not, from the producing states to the consuming states. For example, if you were a producer in Texas, you could get full market prices if you sold your gas within Texas, but try to sell it to Michigan. And once it crossed the state lines, it was controlled by the federal government at pennies to the dollar. He wanted something like smart deregulation that could help all the stakeholders. But it also seemed that it was, that's what everyone says they want, but it also seemed that it was possible then in a way it's not now. Yeah, so let, let's contrast it with the, the so-called deregulation of President Trump. First of all, Mike, we appointed to all the regulatory agencies, the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, we appointed pro-consumer advocates, in fact, many drawn from Ralph Nader's, Nader's Raiders. We didn't appoint, as today, industry stalwarts or those who have lobbied for industry to regulate the industries from which they came. The Trump administration is applying deregulation to the environment. Carter was, and I make the case, the greatest environmental president since Theodore Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. We took on water projects which were environmentally damaging. We enhanced the Endangered Species Act. And most particularly, Mike, we literally doubled the size of the entire national park system that Teddy Roosevelt had created by the Alaska Lands Bill which the whole delegation, Democratic and Republican, wanted open the whole state for oil and gas exploration. He appointed also, and this would be very interesting, I think, to your listeners, Mike. He appointed, here's a southern president, yeah. more minorities and women to judgeships and senior positions than all 38 presidents before him put together. He was a great champion for inclusion not for pitting, as we see today, one group against the other. We, he supported affirmative action for universities and women. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is quoted in the book, as she is in the RBG documentary that people have seen, as saying, I would not be on the Supreme Court had Jimmy Carter not opened the judicial system to women. Now, the second thing, the second major area that I wanted to ask you about is is the White House, is your White House's relationship with special prosecutors. Because I was just two weeks ago researching uh, Brett Kavanaugh and his uh, stance on the law that created the special prosecutor. I think it's called Morrison. And we went through instances where special prosecutors were used. And I did not remember or realize that there was a special prosecutor, special counsel, who was looking at members, key members of your administration for allegedly doing cocaine at Studio 54. Can you take me through learning about sure that can. and what the heck was going on? I'm really glad you mentioned it because one of the reasons that Carter won the election in 1976 against Gerald Ford is the reaction to Watergate, Mike. And so he pledged, I'll never lie to you, I'll have an open and transparent government. And this was not just rhetoric. All the ethics bills we passed are still in place. The 1978 Ethics Act, for example, required the disclosure of assets going in, gift limits when you're in office, restrictions on lobbying going out. And, as you mentioned, we created the Office of Special Counsel. Now, here's the big difference between what happened then and today with Mueller. So Mueller is there because of our law. 
It was designed to have an independent special counsel to investigate potential wrongdoing by the highest officials in government. So who was the first target, as you suggested? It was none other than President Carter's chief of staff, Hamilton Jordan. A special counsel was created to investigate him. A million dollars of legal fees out of his own pocket later at the time we were running for re-election in 1980 and diverting him. Right. So Ham wound up being uh, exonerated 24 to 0 by a grand jury. And Walter Cronkite called what happened to him the, you know, baseless charges, the worst story he ever broadcast. But was it ever considered, um, here's what we have to do to fight back, here's what we have to do to win the war of public opinion, here's the extrajudicial steps we have to take for political reasons? No, Mike, and that's the great contrast between Jimmy Carter as president and our current incumbent, because he did not try to undermine it, he did not try to subvert it, he did not try to go around it with leaks. He let it take its course as painful as it was for us, and that's what the rule of law should all be about. The impression I get from the book and readings before it, but definitely in the book, as we talk about his instincts and maybe his unwillingness to compromise a horse trade, is something like this. A lot of people look at doing the right thing or look at virtue in terms of the big picture. Virtue is if I do what needs to be done within bounds in order to get to a virtuous outcome. But it seems to me that Jimmy Carter defined virtue as being virtuous in each and every moment. And therefore, compromise was seen to him uh, differently than it's seen to a lot of politicians. Yes, I made this case. In fact, one of the reasons people don't realize we got 70% of our legislation passed is because he had great difficulty in compromising what he thought was the morally right thing to do and in convincing people that getting half a loaf he had actually won rather than lost. Mm -hmm. This was somebody who was very, very religious but in a social gospel sense and not trying to impose that religion on others. And I, my book is not just about Carter. It's about the presidency itself and about the 1970s, it was the rise, Mike, of the consumer movement, the environmental movement, the black power movement, the women's rights movement, and after Roe v. Wade, which, by the way, Carter supported, it was the rise of the pro-life movement and ultimately of the evangelical movement, of which he was distinctly not a part. They targeted him and supported Reagan, who uh, had hardly ever gone to church. Yeah. Do you think that there was anything you could have done to win the 1980 election? Yes. Um, look, if we hadn't had the humiliating 444-day episode with Ayatollah Khomeini, I think we could have won the election. Yeah. Now, what could he have done? First of all, it was the greatest intelligence failure, in my opinion, in American history. With the CIA not realizing the Shah of Iran, our great ally, had feet of clay that his support had evaporated, not realizing remarkably, Mike, that for five years he was being given secretly treatment for an incurable form of cancer. What I recommended and what Dr. Brzezinski, his national security advisor, recommended immediately after the hostages were taken is military action, not bombing, but mining the harbors outside of Karg Island, where 60% of all Iran's oil went, to demonstrate that we were going to choke their economy if they didn't release our hostages. Instead, in a humanitarian gesture, but one I think ended up really humiliating the country and himself, he said to the hostage families, my first priority is getting the hostage out safe and sound. And he did, but at huge cost. 
He then holed himself up in the White House, showing that he was working full-time on it, making himself a hostage. And then what happened is at 3 o'clock in the morning, on the Friday night, Saturday morning, before the election on Tuesday, we got a call. The president wants to leave and go back to Washington. There's a new offer from Iran. And I said, no, don't leave, because that will simply cause more attention to be uh, focused on it. Look at the offer. You'll see that it's not satisfactory. It's positive movement, but it's not enough to end the crisis. He insisted on going back. It brought the whole hostage crisis back to people's minds again as a central feature. And Pat Cadell, our pollster, just said the polls just totally bottomed out at that yeah. point. A- again, acting virtuously in the moment because he couldn't not, but not having his eye on the big picture maybe exactly. strategically. So, so much of what was done is just forgotten. And that's one of the reasons I've written the book. It's not to gloss over the problems we had, which I call the four eyes, Iran, inflation, inexperience of himself in the Georgia Mafia, and inter-party warfare, I tackle those directly. I'm very candid about them. But they've obscured, Mike, so much of what he accomplished. And I wanted to set out in this book before it was too late, before there were no eyewitnesses, before history's verdict was sort of indelibly sealed, that this was not a failed presidency. It was a significant presidency, an accomplished presidency, with problems, yes, but one which achieved an enormous amount. And that's what I've tried to do in this book. Well, Stuart Eisenstadt is the man who tried to fight those four eyes. although Eisenstadt is with an E, so maybe he was overmatched. <laughs> President Carter, The White House Years is the book, and Stuart Eisenstadt is one of those longtime Washington wise men and hands who was essential to uh, several administrations. It's been my pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And I'm glad you enjoyed the book as well. That's it for the Saturday show. Corey War is our producer and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Talk to you soon. Monday, say. My gosh, I, you know, you just, just the, the whole idea of getting out there and making this war has got to be impressive that Carter means it getting next to the people and letting the people share in this presidency. He's got a long way to go with some very tough programs and some very tough problems. But uh, he's, he's trying to give this thing the appearance of a fresh start with a tradition-shattering walk down Pennsylvania Avenue.